I was like mid to became upper 20s. So I was like 27, 28, got married. I was making a lot of bank. It was fun. My wife and I were rolling around in limousines, taking people to, to football games and dinners. It was fun. Here we were going off. And then all of a sudden, we saw the sharks swimming above us. Welcome to Breaking Down Boxes. It's Gene Marino with Acres Packaging. I'm Joe Morelli from Houston Patterson Printers. We have compelling conversations with successful entrepreneurs in the packaging space. We have an exciting guest, a legend in the industry, even though he's still a young man. Still pretty impressive background. Greg Tucker is chairman and CEO of Bay Cities, a diverse packaging-based business uh, headquartered in Southern California. Greg has a very interesting story, uh, beginning as a designer in a very small lifestyle business that he's eventually taken over and grown into a significant player across North America. What I love about Greg is uh, willingness to share and, and uh, experientially, as well as his advice in, in the number of years he's had in the business. He's, he's also done quite a bit for me. I don't want to uh, oversell him at this point because he hasn't even started really getting into his story yet, but uh, I talked about him in one of our previous podcasts and, and what he did for me personally and in, in, on the business side. So wonderful human being and uh, great to have you. Thanks. Well, thanks for having us, you guys. As somebody that's probably one of the most colorful personalities in the industry, um, somebody that has been impactful in my career. We're excited to hear his story, dig in a little bit more specifically about the processes that you put in place to get where you're at today. Give me a little background on yourself, who you are, uh, your role in the company, Bay Cities, uh, maybe a two-minute commercial on your, on your business. So Bay Cities is basically a company that designs, manufactures, packs out um, point-of-purchase displays, uh, retail packaging. We also manufacture industrial packaging, brown boxes, those kinds of things. Uh, we have an e-commerce platform that allows you to design something uh, on the fly at night. I, I look at this business as a drunk at 2 in the morning designing his or her own box and ordering it like it just came from Amazon and, and it getting executed quickly through the process without any intervention other than the first intervention being the pressman. Um, also, we're involved in data. Uh, we're now involving ourselves into automation with robotics and we're just a, a, a forward-thinking company dragging an old industry with us as a, as a footprint to enable us to grow and grow and grow as a, as a different company and a, a prosperous, fun-loving company. I want to dive right in because I heard you speak probably seven or eight years ago now, maybe even longer, about the early days of Bay Cities. Bill Hannon, the predecessor to, to you, where were you then in your career? How did it start? And then what was your interaction with him? And, and how has that changed over the last 20, 30 years? Bay Cities goes back to 1956. So yeah, start from, start from Bill Hannon's days. So I'm a fisherman from a third world country, moving into Los Angeles. No, I went to the University of Southern California, and that's kind of sort of where I met Bill Hannon. A uh, very good friend of mine, Patrick Olson, was Bill Hannon's father's best friend. And Bill and Neil Olson, um, we're just really, really good friends and they both lived in Lake Tahoe. So Bill had a summer house in Lake Tahoe and we would go up and just abuse the house. We would steal his boats, steal his water skis, steal everything <laughs> and just go 
just have a lot of fun. And it was crazy. And the penance for that was picking up Mr. Hannon. Back then it was Mr. Hannon uh, at the South Lake Tahoe Airport and driving him through Cave Rock and delivering him into South uh, Nevada, where his home was right on the lake. And that was our penance. And it was kind of interesting li listening to a gruffy man out of the West that just got off a teeny airplane. He's six foot six, doesn't fit well, fit well in, in seats and just had every complaint in the world. And you just had to sit there in silence and drive him home. I, I will say this. I have fortunately Bill is my mentor. Number three, Neil Olson, who was Bill's friend, um, was my mentor. Number two. And the beauty, beauty about Neil was he was the executive vice president of what was then the Sheridan Corporation, uh, overseeing all of marketing for the Sheridan Corporation. It just taught me so much stuff. And how old about, were you? Uh, this is what oh, part of your life? I was 20, maybe 19, something like that. I was a, I was a sophomore in college. And uh, it, was a great, it was a great opportunity, one, to, just to meet Neil and then to understand this gruff guy, Bill Hannon, a little bit. Uh, so I progressed through college, uh, was looking really to be in the entertainment industry, uh, promoting concerts. And that was just somewhat of a failure because I have an addictive personality and it was just craziness. There's an ugly side to that whole world, which are drugs. And so watching these people, you know, shoot heroin and snort cocaine and just do things that shouldn't be done wasn't really a great goal setting thing for me. So I needed a different path. So I went then and figured out, okay, I'm going to go into a restaurant and hotel management. Did two internships, one at the Sheridan, one at the um, Marriott and just went, this isn't for me. So in all that stint and as time went on, I found myself in 1981 going, what in the hell am I going to do? And my buddy goes, go work for Mr. Hannon. <laughs> I says, well, you got to be kidding me. That guy, are you nuts? And he just goes, well, you know what? The great thing is you get a car that says box on it and it can be like <laughs> box whatever. And he'll teach you the business. He'll teach you business. I go, Bill's like one of the most gruffest guys on the planet. He's mean, nasty. Can, he's just a miserable person. Tucker, just go listen. Go listen. Go interview with him. So I went and I called him up. It was 1981. was a pretty discernible recession here in the United States of America. I don't know if you all remember it. Many of you don't. You well, I was born don't. that year. You were born that year. Mike, you do remember it. It was, it, was a, it was a rough recession. It was a tough recession. I mean, interest rates were 18%. Anyway, it was tough. So I interviewed with Bill. He uh, threw me into a sales manager interview with him. And the sales manager said, I'll call you back in a couple of weeks. Well, nothing, no call back. For me, supporting myself, in college and, and furthering that, I was painting houses. We had two crews of people who were making a lot of money, but it wasn't a thing that you want to professionally go into. But so I, I didn't really need to jump into something, but I want to get into some kind of profession. So I called the sales manager back and I said, what's going on? Well, we really don't have a position for you. So I called Hannon and I said, what the blank? You own the company. Let's go. <laughs> he goes, well, let me check it out, Tucker. Didn't hear back from him. Then I heard from his sales manager again another week and said, we want you to come back and interview again. So I went back, interviewed again, came back, nothing, crickets. So I called Hannon again and said, this is ridiculous. I thought you really owned the company. <laughs> I, got a, I got a call back the next day with an off-the-wall job opening for a sample maker in the design department. Okay, so I went to school. I got two degrees, one in personnel management, one in marketing management. I'm going to go work. Making samples. A, making samples in a design department, which I know nothing about. 
So I said, sure, let's go. Sounds like a great profession. And for those of you who are relatively new to the industry back then, it was a manual table and a completely manual process. It was not a table, Gene. It was uh, it was a drafting board where I never knew anything about drafting. I learned how to draft, which was pretty interesting. And you drafted the drawing onto the piece of corrugated, lined it all out, and then cut it with an exacto <laughs> blade. It was like that's what you did. And a sample, if you after after a while, you got really good. You could you could knock out, you could lay out a sample, cut it fold it up in probably about 20 to 30 minutes. It wasn't easy. Now with CAD, I mean, boom, five minutes at the most, and you've got something of perfection. Can you paint the picture of what Bay Cities was like in 1981? Oh my God, yeah. When I think of your name, it's innovation. Your marketing's incredible. You're always at the forefront of driving this industry. 1981? 1981. So Bay Cities, we were the designers for packaging that basically set it upon itself for transportation packaging for anything large. We were the kings of the furniture. Hmm. And then we got into cut foam and laminated foam on the corrugated for skids of, uh, of copier boxes and things like that. So we got into electronics, but everything was performance tests. We were one of the first ISTA test facilities on the West Coast. So we would design to the specification of what we thought was right and then test the living heck out of it until it failed so we could reduce packaging all the way along the way and bring forth something that worked to a client with reduced packaging right and that's how we went to market but we were a teeny 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 little company i think we were like a 12 million dollar company and unfortunately we had lost our plant manager whose name was mr michael federick who went on to start a company called Orange County Container, hmm. and we lost our head sales guy who really was handling, I want to say 20% to 25% of our business. So there was a big old hole in this company. It was kind of interesting, but it was, it was teeny. And, and Bill Hannon, you know, sole proprietor, but Bill was just this guy out of the West that was just calivanting across the country and making a name for himself. And it was Mad Men. It was nuts. Um, that Mad Men series is really what business was all about. <laughs> it was incredible. Cocktail bars in, in the offices. We need to bring that back. It was nuts. Were there, in your mind, dynamics from a management style or a leadership style that you were already learning early on uh, with respect to the way Bill handled uh, people, handled decision making that you were already cultivating? Or is that is that later in your career as you begin to, to uh, evolve in your own skill set and experience? Gene, I would say later in my career, because what Bill's style was, my way or the highway, once he had his way with you and just sometimes it wasn't a great day in the park, he was done with it. He doesn't, he doesn't ever come back to that moment and it's done. And I think I try to practice that. There's, you can't have regrets. You can't go back to that. You just have to move forward. You say to your, your person, hey, your behavior doesn't work well. Um, let's address this. Let's build a plan for it. But not going back to that point, I don't think is good. I think the point of your seminar that I listened to years ago was about a lifestyle type company. Is mm-hmm. that what you were referring to? That at the was time? many, many businesses, even today, yeah. are lifestyle companies. Meaning? Meaning the entrepreneur, the owner is wearing every hat in the world and it's all about him or her. It doesn't matter as long as they have a nice car. They're running their carpet in their couch through the company. And, and that's how their whole, their whole livelihood is through that company. 
hence their whole identity. And I, I call it their face is through that company. When they sell that company, they lose everything. They lose their face. Sure. You know, it's pretty interesting. Well, let me, let me continue the story. So I got in into this design thing. I loved it. It was fun, but our salespeople were morons. And, <laughs> and if we go back and understand drawing out one die cut is a half an hour and you need 12 die cuts for a, a furniture pack, that's a long time. And so we'd build these things and, and these morons would come back and say, well, the customer didn't like it. Well, why? I don't know. Yeah. Or you need to change it by a quarter of an inch and I need it today. That doesn't work, right? Because it's just, you're, it's not humanly possible. So we got it done. I mean, we, we, we would work weekends. We would work 12 hour days. It didn't matter. We got it done. But I just soon realized the money in this business is in sales. So I quickly gravitated as fast as I could to sales. And, and with Bill's help, we put together a little sales program where I went through every operation in the plant and in, and in the customer service end and for everything. I went through every part of this company, which wasn't too hard because it wasn't too big. <laughs> but I learned what I did learn is I understood the basis of, of how things are made from a creative point of view, understood how they are created from a manufacturing point of view and shipped. And if you know that, that's pretty powerful because most people didn't know anything. And today, a lot of salespeople don't know anything. Sure. So I became the number one salesperson and was probably responsible for more than 30 or 40% of this company inside of five years because I just hustled. We didn't have a sliding commission scale. And the only way I could figure this out is just sell more is the only way I can make more. And I was rolling in the dough. I was making a lot of bank. It was fun. My wife and I were rolling around in limousines, taking people to, to football games and dinners. It was fun. Time you and you're probably mid-20s. Yeah. I was like mid to became upper 20s. So I was like 27, 28, got married. Here we were going off. And then all of a sudden, we saw the sharks swimming above us. And that was Bill's two sons who were, I call them, just, never mind what I call them. They were just two very bad people. They were waiting for this guy to die. Bill was a guy that he, he would never die. I mean, this guy would, he, he had more lives than cats could. I think they, nine lives, I think he had 28 of them. But the guy, the, he looked bad. He looked like Haggard. And these guys were swimming and Bill started slipping and he hired his friend who basically ran our company base terribly, very terribly from an operational point of view, became the president. And we basically said, this guy's got to go. And Bill went through an arduous process where he started looking and interviewing more friends of Bill. And friends of Bill's aren't going to work because we need a change. I just said, Bill, what you're trying to do, find a friend, isn't going to work. Uh, let me propose this. I will work for you for one year for free. My commissions will more than pay for this job. And after a year, if you like me, hire me. And I said, by the way, I'm going to the AICC ski trip. Let me know when I come back. I went away and skied. What year? God, that was uh, 94, 95. Okay. So. And by this time, you're our easy owner, or is it already an ESOP? And can you explain uh, ESOP? We're an employee-owned company, um, which means basically we're owned by all, run by few. But an ESOP basically is a stock growth company built into your retirement. It's a retirement plan. And our goal is to, my goal personally is to retire everybody in that company wealthy. So Bill, well, he, he stopped the company in 86. Okay. He was the uh, majority shareholder. He owned 90 or 87% of the company. His general manager owned 
um, seven or eight, and then another guy owned five. It was Bill, though. It was his gig. So he had ESOPed it, and that was very interesting. So in 95, became the president, went to Tarpon Springs in Florida somewhere, never heard of this place, to an AICC event and national meeting. Uh, I rented a suite, a bungalow suite, and I took everything in that guy's office at my predecessor and put it into two big suitcases and just laid it out on a floor and went through everything. And then I hired a guy by the name of Mort Ackerman and Mitch Klinger to come in and look at all the stuff that I had found and I had categorized everything. And, and after a day, Mort just looked at me and goes, Greg, first of all, you're a madman for even thinking about running this company because that guy's in big trouble from a fundamental issue of taxation. Really, because of his entrepreneurial spirit and how pe people ran businesses, everything, every expense he's running through there is almost illegal. So what you need to do is you need to tether the owner of your company. <laughs> so, okay, I went back and I said, Bill, I got to tether you. He goes, Tucker, what in the hell does that mean? What does it mean? I go, Bill, here's the deal. Number one, 30% of this company is owned by the employees. Number two, you're completely taking advantage of this company. We can't grow the company. We can't sufficiently pay the ESOP as people move in and out of the company. And we can't keep buying more shares because you're blocking this. And it's not right and it's not fair. More importantly, I'm not going to grow that living hell out of this company illegally. Mm. So here's what we need to do. We need to set you an appropriate salary. And we need to set you an appropriate guideline for expenses. And we're going to keep your rent as exorbitant as it is, but your increases that are going to come in the next five years aren't going to happen. So he looked at me kind of crazy, right? Like, well, Tucker, what in the hell does this mean? I go, Bill, I just, I'm cutting your livelihood. And, and we have to do it for the, for the survival of the company, really to keep you out, of, you out of jail. Give it some thought. Literally the next day, the franchise tax board called him and asked him for an audience for a quick audit. <laughs> and oh my God, it was almost, it was a gift from God. So this young lady comes into his office and I, I just told Bill, you just look like you came out of the homeless area. Just look like hell, like you're disheveled and let's see what happens. Let's see if we can talk our way out of this and, and you know, let her know that we'll change everything. We'd all doubt it. She actually looked at Bill and goes, this guy is a train wreck and said, Mr. Hannon, from what I can see in, on the very surface is you've got a lot of issues. Square them away immediately as fast as you can. She didn't say there would be any kind of further... Um, Penalties, no further review, just get it together. I don't know where this woman came from. I don't know how that could ever happen, but I just went, woohoo, baby. I got a, a new lease on Lifeline. life. Lifeline, here we go. A new lease on life. So we, we did it. We put it all together and, and started to run the company a little more like a company, which means you had to open the door and open the kimono and really see what's inside of it. And what was inside of it was terrible. Every one of his advisors were just predators just taking advantage of him. Um, right after that, I recall an insurance agent told me that we're, all these things are $600,000 things. You're $633,000 upside down in your single premium whole life policies. I go, okay, explain this to me. Well, back then it was a very vogue thing to buy single premium whole life, put in money and borrow the money back, right? Back then you could write off the, the principal, which is the money you put in and then pull the money back out. It's almost like double dipping. Unfortunately, the law changed. No one changed with the law and all these all these policies were completely upside down. 
to the tune of about $633,000. And this guy tells me this, I go, well, I need to see you. You need to come in and help me out. So he comes in there, rolls in in a limousine, right? And he just told me, well, this is it. There's nothing we can do. I go, well, thank you very much. I don't think we'll be needing your services again. So quickly research, found out um, there's a way around this. You, you buy these things down at a discount, lay in the weeds, and hopefully you're all right. We did it. We were good. The dynamic of the fact that that franchise tax person doesn't come in there and you're probably not having this conversation with him to make this kind of transition. You think that was the, the pivotal point where you were able to really get in underneath and, and, and say, basically save this business? I think it validated my, my quest. It validated what I was after because I was after doing this. I was all in and being that guy that would run this place, but I needed him to be governed, right? Yeah. He needed that to happen. That's just validated. That's amazing. So that's just, and, and man, that was the gift of God and Alexander Graham Bell right there, right? <laughs> just from my own personal experience, I, I sense this, even, even though these people are stealing from Bill, I would say probably a few of them were friends. And, and now you're stepping in the middle of that. Did, did he try to push back at all? And, and you had to like lay things out on the table, say, hey, look, you're completely getting taken to the cleaners here. hundred percent. Yeah. I go, Bill, we got to take these, these, these things one by one and, and make them happen. And at that time, you have a young family. Oh, yeah. Explain uh, how difficult that was on you personally to be fighting that battle at work. You got two young children at home at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, how did you balance that? You know? Well, I got to say, God bless my wife. <laughs> she is an amazing, unbelievable creature that allowed me to do what I had to do to do it. I'm sure those were difficult times and difficult decisions. You know, where do you, I, I don't get to go to the ball game or the whatever because yeah. I am immersed in this madness, but I knew that cleaning it up, is going to allow us a more viable future. Uh, and I think the way we solved it, the way I solved it with my wife and the kids is we rented a motorhome and then bought a motorhome and we became motorhome people. And every weekend we would just put everybody in the bread box <laughs> and go. And no, no, I mean, there was no video games. There was nothing. It was just us playing cards, playing board games, singing songs, making weird names up for each other. And that's how we, we became a family. Let's kind of fast forward and, and make the assumption that um, 94, 95, you've come in, you've sought, you've dug through all this stuff. You, you've basically been told to run, but you can't. So you dig in and, and you really, you vet out, which, you know, we're, we're compressing probably something that took you years, but um, you, you solve these riddles, you get the right kind of alignment with uh, stakeholders to help you on, on the supply and vendor side and, and start to get this ship turned. You're obviously developing your own style of leadership because as I would think, you correct me, as employees see you taking over and making these decisions, they're now coming to you to answer questions and solve problems and set the course. Are you starting to develop your own style? Are you crafting kind of a way about yourself and, and it, or is this just kind of organic and it's just occurring as you go? Like, how do you, how do you speak to that? Well, when you have a gentleman that owns a company, everyone's going to him and the culture is set for Bill because Bill promoted every one of his friends. I call him Fobbs, friend of Bill, <laughs> right? Everybody in that organization is a friend of Bill. And when I started enacting change in this company, which we had to change one fundamentally, just how we ran the business and saw the business from the entrepreneurial sole proprietorship. I mean, that rubbed him the wrong way. And that is getting pushed down into the organization. No matter if he said a word or not, it's getting pushed down the organization. So they see this kid coming in, messing with daddy. Yeah. 
Well, then all of a sudden this kid who's their friend is now their boss. It's an interesting dynamic because I had to also change some folks there. I mean, we were outgrowing these people because we were literally growing this company. And we went from 12 million to 14 million to 17 million to 20 million. We were growing and we had to do this correctly or poof, it's, it's of no value. Again, we were an ESOP, right? And I, I took the position, we own this company, at least the minority share of this company. And we should act accordingly like that. A lot of pushback. How long does Bill stay in an active role? Or maybe a better question is, when does he really start to relinquish management and leadership and maybe even strategic direction? So Bill faded away in 2002 via health. He died at 87. And basically, that was in 2002. At that point, he sent a, a, a retirement message to it saying that he was retiring and one of my first wars with him was not only with him but was with his estate and i put together what's called a net death incapacity or retirement program that said if one of those three triggers happens this company takes over and buys all the shares either through the esop or people in that company that had to be employees could buy that that company yeah because i knew these sharks were swimming they were looking at this guy saying Daddy's going to die and we want the biz. Yeah. You know, but it, 30, again, 30% of it was loaded up into the, into the ESOP. So I leveraged the living hell out of that company and, and bought as much shares as we could, as quickly as we could. And boom, we were great that we did it. It was, it was a very good thing. But 2002 rolled along. He uh, basically retired. And then his, this is a terrible thing. His two sons put him in a retirement home or a a convalescent home. And as soon as they put them into this convalescent home, I visited him that next night, the next day he passed away. It was like the worst thing you could ever do with this guy because you you just took his total independence away from him. Yeah. So he passed away and we just went to town building this company. The chapter of of Bill, for the most part, uh, concludes, but but you also referenced him earlier in the in the discussion of uh, mentor number three. Um, what were some of maybe two or three of the key things that you know while he was gruff and ran a lifestyle business, or you know he he he'd run you over and and then he'd he'd move on. What were some of the things you took away that have become a part of your style from from someone like Bill? The other thing he was, was very value centric with his customers. He would never buy a customer. And a lot of that was going around in our industry. And in, in that time, it was, you know, as an entrepreneurial, let's just, you know, buy this guy a couple TVs or I've seen literally companies buy purchasing agents houses. If you can imagine that in the motion picture <laughs> industry, a, a competitor of ours literally bought the purchasing, purchasing agent a home. It's messed up. How do you do that? And yeah. Bill was very, very centric about we keep our nose above ground. We work with integrity and that's something we're never going to do. That's great. That's pretty impressive. You know, that, that was a very, very important. You know, those are two, I think, big tidbits, you know, just do things right. Yep. They'll come to you later. Just do them right. When he passes along, next chapter opens for you, day one. What, what's that like for you? Are you? What it was like for me is, okay, this is now Greg yeah. and building this company. And I rounded everybody up, what we call State of the Bay. And I said, you guys, Which you still do today. We do them every, every month. We do a state of the Bay yeah. once a month. And why, is a, that, why is that important to you? Well, it's important to me because it's keeping the culture and keeping everybody in tune with what's going on in the organization. It, Would you do it if you weren't ESOP? 
Yeah, I would do it if I wasn't ESA. I would do everything I do today if I wasn't an ESA. Because it all, everything you do has to center around the C word. Don't take any offense. It's communication, right? It is the C word. And it's the most important thing. Any kind of relationship you're in revolves around the C word. You cannot be successful in any kind of relationship without communicating properly, right? A lot of, a lot of relationships fall apart because one won't communicate with another. And I think over-communicating is the most important thing you can do in any relationship and in, in running any business. And so day one culture. Day one culture. We were walking into 2002. I was looking at 2003 not being a good year. 2004 was not a good year. Um, things were starting to boil up as far as what we were seeing. Almost crashed the company. But what I did is say with everybody is, look, everybody, look. Here's what's going on. We are wiring the world. Everything today is going to be 10 times faster tomorrow. And we have to be better, faster, cheaper than everybody in this business. And it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of hardship. But the promise is we own this company. At what point now, after that kind of state of the bay, do you have to sit back and, and whether you do it independently or with your leadership team? Because again, Joe and I know you pretty well. You're very forward thinking. Uh, you have an ability to, to look around corners, but but from the from the standpoint of now, you have to set a strategic direction for this business and and have to execute upon that. How do you go about that? What's your style? Um, maybe walk us through in this time frame how you're going to get this laid out now that it's Greg. So I had to find what Greg was. I had to define what what my style's going to be. Right. I realized from. 95 to 2002 it was not a good style as well because it was somewhat of bill scruff style it was like get this done right because we were moving real fast and again i had a i had a, a culture that wasn't moving with us right so i had to develop a style that said you know what that doesn't work the salesperson has to be put aside and i have to work as a manager and again i have to allow people to manage i have to build a team and I have to direct a team for success. And the first thing we did was put together what we called our leadership team. And we would meet, they hated my guts, but at first it worked really well. We met every, every Wednesday at 6.30 in the morning. And we grind away on, and we work on the business. We, we don't, you know, no phone calls, zero. We work on the business. And, and we have our buckets. We have our management style in, everyone's in there. And then we were kind of starting to set goals. It wasn't very organized. It was kind of, you know, trial by error. Um, our first, we, we had our first strategic planning meeting by a guy by the name of Don Schmenka, who, who wrote a, a, a very interesting book. But uh, Don really just said the biggest thing about business is warfare, but you have to have a goal and you have to attack a mountain and go get that goal. So you got to, first thing you do is do goal setting. Oh, well, we figured out how to do goal setting. So we started doing that. We just kind of imp incrementally figured out where we were. And it took literally, from my point of view, it took all the way until about 2010-ish. So we figured out really how to get strategic plan right. Did you have key players at that time that you became reliant on? Oh, yeah. And were they self-developed by you or were you I, I looking think to hire I, talent? I try, I try to teach people. I try to also encourage people to read. I really love people if they would for once pick up a book or, or listen to an audio tape or something, an audio tape, 
Yeah. How does that work? Yeah, I was, yeah. GDP I remember, was still. I remember those. Yeah. Anyway, I, I encourage people to really read. And I also like, I don't like looking at our industry. I hate looking at our industry. I think our industry, I'll be very honest. I hope you guys don't get mad. Our industry is built upon a bunch of C players. You might find a C plus player. I could be a, maybe a C or C plus player, but I'm not a genius. We don't have any geniuses in this industry. But if you look at this industry, would you put your checking account into this industry with the amount of screw-ups we make in a box plant or in a printing press plant? That's a fair right? question. Would you? No, you wouldn't. Probably not. So I look at other industries to better our company, not our industry. I want, I want to benchmark those best-in-class industries that are looking for zero defects, zero flaws. And how do we get there? What do we got to do to do that, guys? Because, you know, we have, I think we have this thing called the TAPI standard. And when someone says your, your setup should be this and your run should be that, no, they shouldn't. They should be the OEM spec of that machine because you bought it at that. Yeah. Right. And that's where you need to be playing. So let's drive to that. Let's not play with this happy little idea of, of the industry standard. Let's play to the machine's ability to run and run it. We met in 2004 and um, I started to uh, spend time with you to your facility and I think about the people over the years that you've employed that I've met, they're A players. And so, you know, while you're incrementally moving the needle from 02 to, as you said, you know, you really started to solve it about eight years later in 2010, what, what was your interaction? So you're having this weekly meeting, but what are you doing to try to drive and develop talent and the members of your team kind of through that horizon from O two to 10, even to today. So the most important thing there is, yeah, you have group dynamics in a meeting, but you also have individuals that are in that meeting and everybody's different. And again, it goes back to the C word, it's communicating. So we communicate on a, what we call a one-to-one -one basis. Every month we have a one-to-one -one meeting. We don't miss the meeting. The, the house has to be burning down to miss that meeting. And that meeting really is, is probably wrong to do this, but First thing we talk about is what's going on at home that's hampering you from doing the most excellent job here. What, what's just bugging the hell out of you? Let's work through some of that first. A lot of people say in business, don't mess with people's house, right? I kind of believe, well, people are living in your business. You want to help them through your house a little bit. So we get through their personal life and then we get into where are you with your goals? What's in your way? And my job realistically is to do nothing but fill potholes, get rid of branches and trees, clean the road up so everybody can drive through it. I'm the lead blocker of a football team, right? That's really what it is. And I work literally for them to succeed. And if you have that kind of attitude and that, that thought and theory, I think you're going to be a lot better off than saying, I'm the boss and da, 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 you're going to do this, that, and the other thing. I don't think that works well. Well, an interesting aspect that, that I'm a huge proponent of is, is a monthly conversation, a one-on-one -on -one conversation versus here are your goals for 2022 and uh, I'll talk to you in December and uh, incremental measurement system and feedback loop is, is really how people in your organization succeed. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to me that, that you do that sort of thing because leaders, we, we only can get more done through others and to the extent that we can have uh, the ability to help them along their journey leads to our ultimate success as a team. And it's very interesting to hear you, hear you talk through that. Key players around you, basically these are? Sahar Marabzada, who is our sales director. My goal with her is to make her our president within probably 
six months to a year. A gentleman by the name of Pat Donahoe, who is our president and CFO. Pat is a Harvard graduate, bright, very, very bright guy. Uh, pleasure to have him, trustworthy guy. He's also my second trustee of the of the ESOP, which is important. Um, we have Michael Musgrave, who is our chief operating officer, digital forward thinking uh, pioneer, one of the first in, on the West Coast. He's run a pack out operation um, and, and a brown box company as well, and a Flexo World, all of those. So he, he checked all the boxes before we hired him. So we hired him. Um, again, chief operating officer. I've got an IT guy that started our design department, probably my most strategic guy, which is a mind blower. My, my IT guy is my most strategic guy who I spend more time having strategic questions and answers with. Uh, then I have a HR director who just got promoted. Her name is Stephanie Navasu. Navasu is a rock star. Oh my God, but she is awesome. When we got into COVID, this woman and her team just kicked major ass through it. I've never been more happy with somebody in that position and she deserves to someday just run this damn company, maybe. You know, I think she just has that positive energy and looks for success utilizing people in organizational development. And then I have a marketing director named Nanika and Nanika is helping run and drive after these three and a half years, basically our DIY pack, which she'll do a hell of a job. I mean, she, she's just built this thing from the ground up and that's her passion. So that's really our group. Hope I didn't forget anybody, <laughs> but they'll probably never hear this podcast. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, we, we got a really strong group. I, I will tell you this over the years, this is the strongest leadership group I've had in a long time. It's, it's fun. Joe uh, mentioned before, you know, the state of the Bay, he had said, you know, do you still do these today? You said, yes. You think, um, you think that has positive impact? I mean, I believe it does. I guess I'm looking for you to elaborate more on, on the positive impact it has at the line level when you talk about things like uh, best in, in class? At the line level and the plant level, and here's what's really weird. Our, we're an employee-owned company in the office, but we're not employee-owned in, in, the, in the manufacturing facility. Interesting. Only because it's a union facility and they have their own uh, retirement plan. And for all given purposes, an employee-owned plan basically is a retirement plan. However, in the plant, we still share the same data. And what we do in the plant is we run our plant with OEE, which is overall equipment effectiveness. And you can't cheat with OEE. And in my upbringing of going from, you know, 1995 to 2002 with Bill and fighting all these fun fights, I realized the people running your plant, they are so shrewd and clever. It's amazing. You start doing setup initiatives where you're driving your setups down, right? Because you want to get your setups down so you can get better, faster, cheaper in your whole organization, guess what starts happening? Your run speeds slow down. Because why? What do they really want? Hours. Correct. They want hours. So when your, your sales can't deliver hours and you've got some madman like myself trying to drive equipment efficiencies, who's getting lost? The operators and all the assistants and everybody in the plant. They're smart. They get it. So that's why things fail. So what OEE did for me is it, it wrapped set up and run into one thing and you can't cheat because it's a throughput mechanism that says this, that, this is what this is going to do. These are the minutes you have in a day to make this thing do what it's going to do and go use them. Yeah. So we bring that together. Our state of the bay in the plants called a hoopla. 
which is a boisterous uh, party to, <laughs> to communicate with. And so was, fitting, isn't it? I've seen one. It's so fitting. You, I think you have seen, I've you seen a hoopla. hoopla. It's yeah, you've amazing. seen one. And, and we reward people for safety. We reward people for hitting their OE goals. We have this big thing that spins around like a, like Vanna White. And, it, and there's, there's rewards on it that they picked we didn't pick. And we do a monthly one and then a quarterly one. I mean, the quarterly ones are big dollars. It's crazy. But it, it's, it's one, rewarding, recognizing, communicating, and giving them the data as to what's going on. Kind of to pivot a little here. I mean, it seems like you spent quite a bit of time getting your business in check, focusing on your business mm -hmm. and getting the wheels turning the way you wanted to turn. And then come 2014, you start looking forward. You start seeing opportunity outside of California. You open an office in Bentonville. Well, we had done that prior to 14, which is funny is the most interesting this industry ever did was make me the chairman of the AICC <laughs> in 2014. But really right before that, we, that's when we brought on Holly Green, who is from the human factor. And we did really, it's a spinoff of EOS and it's, she calls it destination modeling, which are the goals that you're aspiring to do. But the beauty of that is we work in the past, right? So if, if you talk about it and, and, and study elite performers, right, they're thinking of the win. They're thinking of the goal. And they think that they've already done it. And, and if we put people in the past that they've already acquired, let's say you want to be a $50 million company. We have been and hit $50 million at the end of this year. Boom. Then you build your goal sets back from that. It's easier to put yourself in that mind and say, how did we do it rather than how are we going to do it? Because you visualize and already realize the win. So that's the behavioral mind slip of Holly Green's um, destination modeling and the EO system. All the EO system is exactly the same. There's no doubt about it. I think they all steal from each other. That's how they're consultants. And they just come in and get money from all of us. But that's the difference between Holly Green's and the EO. And we went out and started our system in 2012. And you could literally watch our share value just go up. For just a little context, she, she worked with our company too. And uh, first meeting, she sits down with our, our owner. And our owner gives an idea. And she goes, that is quite possibly the worst idea I've ever heard. <laughs> you know, so she's not afraid to slap you in the face as a, as a leader of your well, company. Well, be honest with you. She's not slapping you in the face. She's just being honest with you. And nine times out of 10, owners or presidents or managers. Don't hear that. Don't hear that. Nor do we all think we're doing the right thing. And we don't like confrontation no. because, well, you know, we're going to look bad. Who cares what you look like? Yeah, I think the important message that I'm that I'm taking away from this just in uh, starting in 2002 with Schmenka's book is a framework. Yeah. And my message from the mountaintop, just so I can get up there and yell as loud as I can, is any framework. Just put something in place that can align your team, uh, common message, common focus, common goal that you can then execute and measure performance again. Exactly. And, and, and that's, it's interesting to me that you moved incrementally for that first, call it eight to 10 years and, and then kind of find Holly and adapt. And, and all of a sudden you're, you're tied to a rocket, uh, mm -hmm. a rocket booster. And that's when things really get, get exciting. Right. Uh, there's team momentum, there's, there's employee momentum and there's shareholder momentum. And, right. and those are exciting opportunities. Big time. Yeah. 
all at the same time of transitioning out of an industrial box business, which our heritage is there, right? We still run, my God, what, $40, $45 million worth of brown boxes every year. That's a lot of money in brown boxes for any plant. And we had to transition out of that because we had a guy by the name of Jerry Brown, came the first Jerry Brown, came into California and peeled every business out of California. Our, our run to China wasn't like 10 years ago. It was more like back in the very early 80s and mid 80s. where We had to reposition this company. That's, that's where the culture changing was real difficult because I had to do it in the rear as a salesperson and then as a leader, moving them from a brown box company to understanding flexographics, lithography. And, and the way we did it, we started screen printing, which you would ever think that's how we got graphic. We started with a one color screen printer and learn how to print process work with one color screen printer. What I'm hearing you say is now there's, there's governmental trade winds that you already sense early on. And oh, so yeah. you are meeting with your team to say, Hey, let's not be reactive to this. Let's get ahead of it. Let's get ahead of it. Get ahead of okay. the curve. That's what we did. That's interesting. It was nuts. And believe me, we made some mistakes along the way. I mean, we had this crazy idea of running E-flute and F-flute through an offset press. That's in 1997, which offset presses aren't designed to run thick paper through. They're, they're run, you know, lithos SBS. You're used to that, right? Maybe, max 32 point yeah, max. max 32 points. So you throw E-flute through it and all the grippers just get bent <laughs> to hell. And it's not a fun day in the park. But we learned to do it. We mastered it. But by the time we got real good at it, it was, it was just eating us alive. That was a hard hit and a hard mental hit, you know, for an ego just saying, well, it's not doing well. Pull it. And we did. But sometimes you got to do that. Sure. Gene mentioned, you know, the forward thinking. Uh, we alluded to the uh, presence in Bentonville. Uh, you have now a location in outside of Chicago and Royal Bay. Um, at what point did you start thinking big picture outside of the local market that you're in. You know, what's funny today, we got a call from Sahar. She is our executive director of sales and, and star player, by the way, star player 16 years ago came to us on this day today. And we put her in a marketing position. Marketing back then was telemarketing for sales, right? Literally three months into it, I don't know how we did this. We got this invitation from this little company in Bentonville, Arkansas, to come out and demonstrate something sustainable. And I pretty much had my hands full. I mean, I, I still was running, I don't know, $12 million in sales, running a company. And I, I just can't wear every hat. And this is another thing you can't do as a manager. You can't be a hero. To scale your company, you got to hand the hat off to somebody else. You got to build your bench, right? So Sahar became our, our sustainability queen. And we went to the first thing in Bentonville. And that's how Bentonville really started. It was literally 16 years ago. Now we have 37 people there. And we're not necessarily there to call on Walmart. I mean, Walmart's a means to an end. There are 10, more than 10,000 suppliers selling the world's largest retailer, right? Our goal is to be good with the retailer and help the supplier win with the retailer, meet them in the middle, be the glove that transacts that deal from a strategic meaning of doing nothing but driving more sales. And once we demonstrated that many years ago how to do that, we started hopping into Costco, Target, Kohl's. The goal is really sell the retailer and help the supplier win. 
And that's it. That's that's really how we go to market from a retail point of view. Well, how would you describe your management style? I mean, you just kind of hit on an interesting point. I don't want to gloss over it. You, you know, wearing a lot of hats and still holding 12 million in sales and you send Sahara to Bentonville. I know your I know your style has evolved. I know it continues to evolve. I know you're a student of of leadership. I would say I have a very absent management style, meaning I'm there to help them grow, but I want them to do their job and not my job. Yeah. I don't want to do their job. They're there to do their job. They have clear expectations, they have clear goals, they have clear roles, they know what they need to do. Everything's laid out for them. Um I really stay out of the, I stay the hell out of their way. Prior to this, prior to where we are today, I couldn't stay out of their way because I was the person. I mean, I developed our safety plan, our governance plan, our compliance plan for a little company. And you had to wear a million hats, but you know what? You can't scale a company doing that. I, I think it's incredible to just hear that humbleness because I feel like so many owners and so many leaders in the, in our industry with smaller shops, independently owned shops want to control everything doesn't work the, the the real reason it doesn't work fundamentally if you don't allow people to aspire and grow and, and spread their wings they're going to leave and what where are we in this environment right i want to grow people i pour water on flowers and make them grow yeah right that's that's what i want to do i want to make them the best that they can be that's really the job yeah, and you've already spoken to it so if i can i can summarize it it's it's clear expectations it's it's helping them be successful by filling potholes and removing branches and making a smooth road. And, and it's, it's regular, open, honest communication. Mm -hmm. I mean, those are the things you're, you're hitting on and they're weaving their way into the story of, of what you've done and what you continue to do with the business. And I think that's really the message here is, you know, how are you setting that table? Do you, do you have core values in the business of what you look for in your people? Oh yeah. We hire to them. We run our business with our values, right? I think that's the most important thing in the world is building your culture is, well, what is, what is your company's values and, and your values dictate and denote your culture. And, and rather than, well, here's all our pretty little values and throw them up there and like, oh, there aren't they pretty. We make our decisions by those values. And it's funny, sometimes we'll be sitting around a, a table and we get this big decision. Well, that, what does this value of integrity say? What does responsibility say? And what is fun saying all of that, right? Because we're busting our chops every day. We got to have some fun at this. And those are how we make our decisions. It's pretty impactful. Pretty and it's meaningful. important. Well, it's easy. It's, not, it's just easy that way. Was there ever a time where you look back through your timeline here and just you maybe went home to, to Betty and just said, we did it? Or are you still in process of well, accomplishing still, your goals? We're still building. I mean, we're still building one hell of a viable company. And what we're realizing is we don't know what in the hell this company is because it's so many different things. I mean, this company is a digital company. This company is an e-commerce company. This company is a company that does retail campaigns to uh, retailers and, and suppliers. We're an industrial packaging company. We're a lot of different things. And what we're realizing is we need to take those spokes and, and per perfect those spokes and grow those spokes as one company. And there's a lot of opportunities we have in our way of doing this. I mean, it's crazy. If we really wanted to, we could segregate one of those things and spin it off. I mean, COVID did a lot of great things to companies, a lot of bad things to companies. For us, it did some bad things, but we did some really good things. We started, this is nuts. We started a freight company. 
in COVID. We did almost $5 million in freight revenue last year because no one can get freight out of a, out of a port. And really, really the reason why that was, we weren't paying the drivers enough money. So I said, hey, our clients were saying to us, can you get freight move for us? Because we need to get stuff to retail. And if they don't get stuff to retail, Kohl's will find the living hell out of you. Target will do the same thing. Uh, Walmart will do the same thing. And you got to avoid those, those hits, right? Plus, you got to put stuff on the shelves for Christmas. Who came up with that idea? Our guys in Bentonville. That's what I love. Yeah. Our, not me. Wasn't you. Wasn't That's me. Right. Our guys in Bentonville. Closest to the customer. Yeah. Now, so I will take credit for one thing I've always tried to do. I want to, I want to build a system where we build a display or a package, prove out prior to manufacturing that package or display that this thing is going to sell in the marketplace. It's going to sell more product. Manufacture that, uh, pack it out, ship it, manage that shipping all the way to the point of destination into the retailer and then manage the ring at retail. And we started building all these programs to do it. It was, it was well, for me, it was the, the, the end game for what we call retail campaigns, right? That's the end game to manage the very beginning and tell this client, this is going to sell. It's going to give you a 2% lift by doing this, this, and this. 2% on $100 million is a lot of money. And these campaigns have a lot of money in them. So we started doing that. We started figuring out how to win it, win it and, and realize the thing at retail. And one of our customers said to us, would you manage our logistics all the way back from in-country to the ring at, re at retail, at the register? We said, sure, because we were ready. And to me, it was fascinating because we were like, wow, that is such an incredible go-to-market thing. But, but that's not the box business. That's not even the display business. That's a strategic mindset that says this is this type of business that we're in. One part of it, right? Well, I've always said it, it's the ability to be opportunistically strategic. Mm -hmm. It's within your customer bandwidth, but it's it's not so far afield that it can't be complementary or augment what what you provide to the customer. Right. And and those are the things that I find it's being most sticky. interesting. That's right. Right. You want to be sticky. What's what's next? What's next for Bay Cities? What's what's next for Greg Tucker? Um, we're playing heavily in the digital world. I really believe that I could see this company with five or six digital plants all across North America. We're playing real hard, so very shortly dumping a bunch of money into an e-commerce platform that we built. It's taken us two and a half, three years to build this platform. Um, it's wonderful. It works really, really well. We're launching it now, but we want to get the SEO marketing right. So we're probably going to spend close to a quarter of a million dollars just doing that. And you're, you're probably going, why in the hell would you spend a quarter of a million dollars on SEO stuff? We want to figure out what works before you go to a super launch with this and launch it correctly with, you know, setting a, a rifle like scope on this pro on this program rather than shooting a shotgun with buckshot. Tim Ferriss does does a great podcast. Um, he's written several books. Uh, you know, he asks his guests, which I love, if, if you could put a billboard uh, in front of the entrance to an AICC meeting for, for all of our industry folks and, and maybe even just entrepreneurs to see what would you, what would you put on it? Wow. This is a place where you can learn your business successfully very quickly, utilizing the network uh, that, that's there. So I would say networking will make you a whole bunch of money. That's nice. 
or a whole bunch of success along the way. And, and success doesn't have to be money. It can be whatever. Sure. Right. I think those relationships are strong and important. And you cut a lot of time out of digging what you're digging for by yourself. You know, <laughs> just think about it. You just told me about how to set this machine up in three minutes. Wow. Would have taken me 10 years. 2014, the ICC puts a crazy kook in charge. And uh, you have a message to the members. And that year for you, and what AICC has meant to you and your business over the years and how, how it's impacted you. Well, I mean, it allows me to see a lot of different companies all across North America and the world. I mean, in the world, I got, I got to go everywhere in the world. And what's really amazing about this organization is with that calling card to the AICC, you can walk into anyone's organization and their, their, their shields are down, their swords are down, and they're welcoming you as another box maker, display maker, litho maker, whatever maker you are, and helping each other win. And to me, that's a huge, huge thing. Absolutely. That's a giant thing. You know, that's no money can buy that. No money can buy that. Getting to know you and seeing you at these meetings and your energy, but just to hear you talk about the passion of your business and how it's come from where it was to where it is today. And you're not satisfied. You just, you're oh, having fun. Yeah. You like, you want to keep going. Mm -hmm. uh, to me, is refreshing. Mm -hmm. Uh, to me, it's, it's, it, it gives me the, the thought process of, wow, there's people out there that are so dedicated to their job. And that's pretty, pretty cool to hear. I know for a fact that uh, you can certainly learn more information at www.bay-cities.com. I'm also fairly certain that if you pick up the phone because you were so inclined after hearing this phenomenal podcast and called Greg, he'd probably call you back. So. We really appreciate your time and, of course, your energy, your friendship, and uh, certainly what you've done for us and what you've done for this industry. We, uh, we're grateful. Well, thank you. Again, have fun and enjoy. Breaking Down Boxes. New shows will drop the first Monday of every month. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.